Welcome to the Faith and Good Counsel Show, where we talk about ways to live a healthy, virtuous, and joy-filled life amid the challenges of our modern world. And now, your host, Stacy Galino. I'm so glad you're joining me here once again on the Faith and Good Counsel Show. I'm Stacy Galino, your host, and I'm delighted to be joined today with Sally Reed. She is my new favorite author, my new favorite poet. In fact, she's a British poet and author joining us today from the UK. Sally's a former psychiatric nurse, a wife, and a mom, and formerly a rather vehement atheist who's become a devout Catholic convert. With her beautiful gift for prose and writing, Sally shares her love story in her latest work, Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. Welcome to the Faith and Good Counsel show, Sally. It's well, so, thank you for having me. such a pleasure. We have a lot in common, you know, Sally. I'm, yes. a, I'm a psychiatric nurse as well. I'm also doing a little bit of a non-traditional kind of practice because I really see you, Sally, as doing um, also still nursing, but through the other gifts that God has given you, the gift of words, the gift of prose, the gift of that heart, the gift of love that you're pouring out in your work. So I'm, well, I hope so, because I, I miss nursing. You know, it's a long time since I was a nurse, because I was a nurse in my 20s, yeah. and I really loved it. And, you know, I love connecting with people and being able to, I worked with elderly, you know, psychiatric patients, yeah. and I love being able to, you know, touch them and befriend them in, in a good way, in a very therapeutic way, and being part of their lives and helping and um, I miss that so much, and I, I, it really touches me that you say that I continue that through my work now and through my writing, because I really hope that, you know, through prayer and connecting with people and through writing, I, I can, you know, reach out and, and help people, because people like to read about how they feel, you know, yes. they like to be able to recognize situations and, and understand how other people relate to God and understand about really hard times that they've been through. And, and I hope I can do that with my work. That really impressed me in your work. In fact, I have to be honest, I cried several times as I read your book. It moved me so deeply. And you do start right off in your book, beginning with those stories of those souls that you encountered in the psychiatric hospital. And this was in the UK, right? In England? Yes, in London. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, you know, when I look back to myself, then I was I was an atheist, but I very much wanted to do altruistic work. It was my goal to help people. And I always wanted to work with the vulnerable. And so I really enjoyed, you know, nursing the dying. And, and I had, I had these great patients who were, they were refugees from the Second World War, grown up. So mm-hmm. these were the, like the Jewish children who came to London without their families. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I loved them so much. But the work took a great toll, you know, on me, because I think that God makes us with uh, a, a, the disposition to be good, but without Him, without Him to perfect us, then we're very weak, or even mm-hmm. weaker than we are, yes. <laughs> you know, as religious souls. And, uh, and I, I found it, when I hit a you know, a terrible period of my life when my father died and I was in this terrible love affair and I was dealing with all this, you know, suicidal behavior and suicidal thoughts and people that were very damaged. I really hit, you know, they say rock bottom, but that's, that's a true, you know, these, these cliches have truth in them. When you hit rock bottom, you really know that feeling, this terrible, terrible blackness. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned um, that you were an atheist and you were a radical feminist, if I understand, very anti-Catholic. You had been raised to be this way. You have several generations, it sounded like, in your family that promulgated that belief system or the lack thereof. And I really tried to place myself in that heart and mind of where you were. And I'm also a convert, um, Sally, and our stories are different. But I always knew somewhere deep that there was a God and he wasn't this harsh God that seemed to be part of the teaching that I was receiving. He was a very loving God, a very merciful God, a God who loved me personally. But I, I can't tell you how I knew that other than his grace. So it was it was a challenge for me, but I really did try to place myself in the place that you were in your mind and in your heart that there was no God, that we as human beings are the end. Um, and yeah, could which you, is a terrifying place to be, and it's the place where an awful lot of people are at the moment in this point in history in Western civilization. And, you know, in Britain in particular, my... My background, if you like, on the on my mother's side is is Irish, but it's Protestant and very very severe Protestant, and that had all gone away by my mother's generation. You know, she's not at all religious, mm-hmm. and my father was you know very very staunchly atheist, and and really really taught me that all organised religion was evil and mm-hmm. the cause of war and the cause of suffering and the cause of suppression of women and all those, and the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. and and I really you know from almost quite an early age I would look at religion and think. One, it was really dumb, but two, this, there was a kind of an envy where I thought to myself, gosh, if I could only, you know, if I could only believe in God, a God, mm. you know, it would, things would be easier, but I just could never see it. To me, it just made no sense at all. It wasn't rational, and I sort of interrogated the universe as much as I could, and I thought, well, you know, there truly is no God. So, and that is a scary place to be, and I think, you know, we're talking about mental health, I'm not saying that being religious is going to make us all brilliantly mentally healthy, but I do see when we have faith in God and when we can trust in God, which is something which is a path for all of us. Every day I have to renew my trust in God because that's part of our flaw as humanity is not trusting. But when we don't trust in God and there is no God, what we tend to fall back on is anxiety because we think we control everything. And when we think we control everything in the world and our lives, it's a very anxiety-making thing. Absolutely. <laughs> Believe you me. So, you know, I was quite anxious as a child. Yes. And, and that's what I love now with my daughter is, is telling her when she's worried or anxious, is saying, you know, we, we hand all that over to God. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mary is watching over you and Mary is your other mother. That is so that's powerful. that's a wonderful thing to do. So powerful. And do you see that that really soothes her? She has the physical presence of your love and your comfort and your nurturing. And to know that there's something, <laughs> the Lord is so much bigger than us. And he gave us our lady to mother all of us, yeah. to hold us in her mantle. That is so comforting. It is. It's very, very powerful. I think especially for all of us. You know, especially for children who have, you know, children sometimes have trouble conceiving of God, and, and, and even Jesus can seem, you know, gosh, well, he's, he's God too. And, but we have Mary, who's just so present, you know, I think especially for children. And, and my, my daughter really responds to her so much. 
Oh, how beautiful. Well, you know, going back to your season of life as a psychiatric nurse, I know that was quite some time ago, but you do speak very prominently about that in the book. And I think it was very formative um, in the beginning stages of your conversion. And what was so intriguing was your connection as you pondered these, I can tell you're a ponderer, like I am a really deep (laughs) thinker, you know, and it's like, why? What is, what am I missing here? You know, but the soul of the people that you were tenderly caring for, that really was a point for you in pondering upon that, like, is there something bigger here? I think that was at least a big part of the beginning of your conversion, your pondering upon the soul, would you say? It it was, because although, you know, all those experiences that I had, and and I talk about, for instance, you know, nursing a man who was dying, who'd had a stroke, and he wasn't being fed anymore. So he was basically, the, the doctors were just waiting for him to die. And, and I, my job was to wash him and to take care of him, but he wasn't really receiving anything to eat. And all those, all those experiences had a huge impact on me. But in, in my early 20s, I found it very hard to process. So it didn't change the kind of the creed in my head at all. I was just struck and upset. Yes. And it wasn't until much later when I went through that incredible conversion in those nine months of, of 2010, when I was actually beginning to write about the patients, and I was, I was writing in their voices, in monologues, and I found myself up against a problem because when I was writing about people, for instance, that had Alzheimer's, who were very advanced in the illness, and they had no, no memory, and even their character was sort of disintegrating, etc., I was up against, well, what is there to this person? How do I express? what they're feeling, how do I express what they are? Am I really saying that they're not there anymore? Am I saying that they're dispensable? Am I saying that they're dead and it's just their body that's, that's existing? So all of those things were very much at the forefront of my mind. You were hitting, it sounds like, those limits of the human condition, you know? That's right, and it, it is. It's the limits of the human condition, and that's where it's at as a Catholic, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, with, um, with, with fetuses and, and, you know, yeah. children in utero, and then we get to the other end of life or people with severe disabilities, society, you know, inch by inch has made us believe that those people really don't count. Right. And that if you're mm. in the position of being really badly ill, then, you know, it, it's fine to say that you don't want to live anymore. And actually, that's a heroic thing to do. Oh, I don't want to live. I want to be euthanized. So it's those areas of life that I find I found at that point was was so important to me, and I, and I realized was so precious. Yes, yes. Well, you're, I'm speaking today with Sally Reed. She is the author of Night's Bright Darkness, a modern conversion story. And Sally, I really, as I mentioned before, I just loved this book. I've already read through it one time, and I was reading through it again in preparation for our interview. And I, I picked up, you know, as you read things over and over again, you pick up on more beauty. Uh-huh. And there's so much beauty in the gift that God has given you in the way that you articulate your words, it just pierces to the heart. And I just love that about your work. And I've read some of your poetry, and those are very deep, I have to say, and you have to really ponder upon them. But that's when the beauty just burst forth. I think it's just, I can't wait to get your other works. It's so exciting. (laughs) Yes. So I wanted to talk for a moment about your father. I know that he was so important to you and you loved him so, so very much. He was very important in your life. But as you mentioned, he was also an atheist. And you speak a lot about that. Um, And I know that that you grieved very deeply. You speak about that in the book as well. But it seemed to me as I was sort of reading between the lines that there was also at the time of his death, 
it seemed to have catapulted you into more of an existential crisis as well. You're right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It wasn't it wasn't a simple grief process, and I realized that after some years looking back, you know, I really broke down. And I think um, in the book, you know, I, I I talk about that period where I hit rock bottom, and you know, my father had gone very suddenly. You know, he was told that he had three months to live, and three months to the day after that diagnosis, he died. Mm-hmm. So it was very quick. And I was involved in this, this, you know, terrible love affair that was, oh, just so dreadful and that really seemed to destroy me. And I was involved in that work of dealing with people who were, who were suicidal. And so there were lots of things, you know, external to me that were going on. But, but the reason that I almost begin the book at that point is because when I, when I shoot forward the years to my conversion experience, when I suddenly realized there was a God, it seems like those two points are two dots that join. Mm. It's almost like mm-hmm. God had to put me, he had to let me get there. He had to let me get to that rock bottom position in order for me to spring forward to that conversion experience those years later. They seem very connected in my mind. And, and I say, you know, I write in the book that when I was hitting rock bottom, it's like the, the absence of God was so intense mm. that now I, I, I see it as, as proof of his presence. Wow, that's so, so beautiful. And also that, you know, I'm very kind of visual in the way that I experience things. And, and I write about the fact that I kept feeling as though I was going to fall, fall backwards onto this rock. It was this constant fear of falling, falling. And that years later, I see that rock that I was scared of falling onto and, and being destroyed. I see that as the other side of God. Like that was God, but I just wasn't recognizing him. Right. Well, you and had... that rock is that rock that we read about in the Psalms. Yes. You know? Because he is there, he is there, he, you know, and he, he, he surrounds us. It's just we're blind to it. And you yeah. had so many factors that played into that blindness. But he's so gentle in the way that he steers us and provides these opportunities for us to begin to see, for the darkness to begin to lift. Um, yeah, that's right. And I, and I feel that I had to go through that. And I think I was I, you know, I was very immature. I think I'm a very immature person. Well, aren't we all? I had to get to a certain point. He knew the right point. Yeah. He knew when my soul would be absolutely ready to receive him in such fullness that the love would be, my, you know, my love is unbounded and I know that it needs to grow and it always will grow. But he knew when to come to me that I would really be able to bear fruit for him. I hope, you know, yes. that's my prayer. I th- amen. And I would, I would say you are. I know it really spoke to me. And so in the book, Night's Bright Darkness, I encourage everyone to get a copy. This is so such a, a beautiful, beautiful work, a beautiful modern conversion story set in this day and time. But you give almost, if the proper word would be, vignettes of your story. It's not intended, I don't think, to be a total autobiographical work. No, it's more poetry and prose and just history and, and, and th- it's, it's really it's unique it's very very a very unique um, way of presenting a conversion story but you you speak about two people who are very prominent and very instrumental in your conversion although clearly I know that the Lord was weaving this tapestry for you throughout your story even though you were unaware he's always yeah. working yeah. right but there's a friend that you met in Rome. Her name is yeah. Christina. And then there's Father Gregory. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of talk to us a little bit about those two people and how they played into your conversion. Yeah, because they're, they're both 
there were many important people, obviously, but those two were particularly important. And if I could start with Christina, I, I befriended Christina, or she befriended me, because we, we both had children the same age, and she was living in the same town just outside Rome. So we would get together to have coffee, and she had other friends who were American Catholics because their husbands were studying in Rome. And my initial feeling about Christina was, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, you weren't very <laughs> fond of her at first, it doesn't sound like. Sorry? You said you weren't very fond of her at first, no, it well, sounds like. <laughs> more that I was, I was shocked at the, the extreme Catholicism they had, because they were proper Catholics. Right. And so when we were all, you know, having coffee together, and I heard their views about abortion, for example, I was shocked, because... I'd never been exposed to that kind of thinking. Right. And so I, I found Christina very difficult initially, but I, I liked her tremendously. And I decided to let, very, very magnanimously, I decided to let my daughter play with her children, uh, despite our differences in, in opinion about religion. But you see, Christina, she's wonderful because she's just so, she, her faith is so deep. And I think witnessing her just uh, very at ease with her, her religion and, and talking to God and talking to Mary in the kitchen really <laughs> yes. had a profound effect on me, even yeah. though I didn't articulate it at the time. And, and then we had a big falling out, which was about something different. It was about politics. We had a huge falling out. But she invited me back to her home, and she never sought to argue with me again. And th again, that, that really impressed me, because where I'm from, or I, you know, where my kind of cultural context, if you fall out with someone like that, then, then that's it. That's it. Over <laughs> there's forever. No, there's no going back. Wow. So she, she was, very, she was very, um, very powerful in her witness to the faith. Yeah, it's, um, It then, seemed to me that her faith was just a very lived out, practical faith, a very deep faith. And it seemed like that was very intriguing to you. It's like, what is this? You know? Yeah, I'd never come across anything like it, really, yeah. because, you know, like, like I say in the book, she'd have a picture of the Sacred Heart in the middle of the kitchen table, and she would, you know, talk to Jesus as she was talking to me, and, and not, in any, not in any extreme way or, or strange way. I, I kind of accepted it. It was just so much a part of her. Sure, sure, sure. And then Father Gregory, about the same time, enters well, in... Yes, because it was through Christina that I got Father Gregory's um, email address, because I was beginning to write this other book, and I was doing research, and I wanted to speak to him about it. And um, again, you know, God, uh, God sent me Father Gregory because it couldn't have been anybody else. Mm. It, it really couldn't. You can just see how, how God works through very specifics and through detail because, you know, Father Gregory is about my age, and he's, um, he's very personable, and he's very funny. So I, I immediately liked him as a person. Yes. And, and then as I got to know him, well, I didn't even get to know him. I just kind of received an email from him, and he seemed very approachable. And and I was like, well, he's so he's so intelligent and he's so nice. How can, how can he be a Catholic? You know, how can he be in this church? <laughs> so so um, I was, well, could I put you some questions about Catholicism? And he said, yeah. And we started this big argument. But the other important thing about Father Gregory was that he had been um, the head of a of a monastic order in Ukraine. And he'd been fighting corruption in Ukraine, which, if anybody knows anything about Ukraine, will know that that's, it's a very troubled country. Yes. And he had received very credible death threats. Wow. I mean, he was really going to be killed. Wow. And he'd had to leave the country because he was a good guy, really trying to clean up corruption. So I was against this person who was clearly a good person, very intelligent, very funny, very normal, very kind, 
and I could not understand how he could be in the Catholic Church. And he was a very steady person to argue with, and he kind of listened and stood by me as I went through all these tremendous changes. Wow. You know, I think it's very intriguing, and uh, you mentioned that you were working on another book, and this book happened to be about feminine sexuality. And so for him to answer your email and to be yeah. open to you, I, I think, was that surprising? That was very surprising probably to you. I was very surprised because I, <laughs> you know, I thought that he'd be so shocked he possibly wouldn't even answer the email, yes. to be honest. Yes. I'm very upfront and I'm very, you know, I use very blunt terms and the book was going to be a very, you know, no holds barred approach to female sexuality. And I thought he possibly would just not answer me or answer me and say, look, leave me alone. I don't want to discuss this. But he was he was totally unshocked. At least that's how it appeared to me. Well, I think and, people uh, think that impressed me, too. Yeah, I think they kept people think the Catholic Church is against sex or against femininity or against women yeah. or it, it's it's really a distorted um, understanding of yeah. of the human oh, person and of women you know that people have about the catholic church it's well because it's like you know i've always said or i've said for the last six years catholic women have to know their bodies so well yes and and the catholic church understands sex which secular society is losing touch completely with what sex is about and i'm not just talking about procreation i'm talking about the interplay of all of those things because once you start cutting things off and and just using things and that's when things get distorted and weird yes yes it's 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 a very interesting time that that we are living in sally and i think i think your book night's bright darkness and your work and the gifts that god has given you and your sassy personality and you know no holds barred i think that is very much a witness and um there's a scripture i think it's in isaiah i usually keep it right by me but it says you are my witnesses says the Mm. lord and i have to keep that in the forefront of my mind because sometimes we get kind of tired i don't know about you sally but i get i'm like come on you know (laughs) really is everything going to be a fight yeah it is it's going to be a cross (laughs) pick it up sister you know (laughs) well in the midst of and there's so much in the book about christina and father gregory and he really was so patient with you just like the priest that i worked with father monroe who is now a saint in heaven i love him he still helps me to this day but you know he just very briefly i spent five months with him every week and i had questions and i wasn't trying to you know I really wanted to know. There was an openness there. But he was so patient with me and just untied all of those knots that were in my brain and in my heart. And by the end, I was just like, I am ready to be Catholic, you know, (laughs) you know. But for you, stepping back a moment, there was a particular moment that you speak about in the book when you realized, okay, there really is a God. That was a very big moment for you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was a huge moment because I was, you know, completely atheist, and I was having these discussions with Father Gregory by email uh, about how terrible the church was, etc. But I was becoming very upset, and I realized that it was, as you said earlier about the time when my father died, it was more, there was something more to it, and it was that existential upset. Yes. And... Um, I, I just remember it so clearly. I was, I was rereading this book called I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which is a wonderful, wonderful book that was actually written for, for, for children, for girls of about 13 or 14, but it's, I recommend it to anybody. And I was reading it because I used to read it every year in the spring. And 
I just remember sitting on the edge of the bed and reading this book. And in the book, Cassandra is the protagonist, and she's an atheist. And she goes to speak with the vicar, who's a Church of England priest, if you like. And it just something about the conversation, well, it, it's very specific. And it's amazing that it never hit me before <laughs> in all the times I read the book. The vicar talks to her about religion because she's dismissive. And he talks about religion being the, the ultimate art because art attempts communion with God. And the religion is the ultimate art because it attempts the ultimate communion with God. Wow. And I suddenly, it just hit me over the head. Because I, I, I'm a poet, and I've been trying all those years to... I was just obsessed with writing poetry and trying to make sense of things through poetry. And I suddenly saw, wow, I suddenly saw... It, this is a lot to say in, in one moment, if you like, but this is almost an, you know, me explicating those feelings, that God was the poet, that the poem mm. was already written, mm. and that that's what I was trying to do, that there was a creator. There was already a creator. Mm. And I just, and again, the vicar just explains very briefly that God is just shorthand for, for where we come from and where we're going and what it's all about. And wow. I thought, wow. Yes. And I, I just sat on the edge of the bed and I, it was a few moments of just realizing, seeing, yes, there can be a God. And yes, there is a God. And of course, it was, I still had so far to go because I'd come, I'd come from this place of nothing. So when I first realized that, yes, there could be a God, and yes, there was a God, it was just this faceless mass, just this, mm. this darkness that was a long, long, long way away. And I didn't know whether that God would be good, and I didn't know whether it would be a Christian God or the God of Islam or the God of anything. So I felt this joy within me, but I was at the same time almost sort of frightened as to what, what might happen next and what right. that God would be. It was right. just the beginning. So I did feel this incredible joy but at the same time, it was this facelessness that I knew I had to resolve. And that's, I think that's a really powerful point because, you know, the faceless God is a very troubling God and a very terrifying God. And, of course, that's why we have Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's why, and we know as Catholics that God is a person, right? The blessed yeah. Trinity. He that's is right. personable. He wants, we were created for relationship with him. Yeah. yeah. And so he's not this faceless sort of cosmic nothingness that exactly. we manipulate you know yeah exactly and I, I thank god i thank god that i'm he gave me the disposition to not be content with just thinking oh okay there's a god okay so i'll just get on with my life and say the occasional prayer i was consumed with knowing the essence of that god and that's what i, I was driven through that spring to discover what that was and that led me to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus Christ and it wasn't until I discovered Jesus Christ I was filled with peace oh. I was just so filled with peace oh it's so beautiful so beautiful there's so many moments like this that you describe in your book Night's Bright Darkness that I wish we had time to discuss them all but there are a few that that really uh, spoke to my heart and one in particular was the experience of your first confession. And there's a little quote that I'd like to read. It's on page 95 in the uh -huh. book. You're speaking, it, it's not with Father Gregory, it is with another priest, Father Kramer. And you enter in and you speak about, you know, your feelings that day and, and the physicality of the experience. And you say, it felt strange too, as it feels to this day, telling things that God already knows and knows my heart and mind regarding them. And then, to tell a life of sin, how was it done? 
I didn't fear God's judgment. I knew that my sins were mostly contained in that time before Christ had entered me that spring. Without him, what hope did I have? But there were great things to wrench out of me, things many of us carry, buried deep and silent, but always there. And I think, wow, that speaks probably to the heart of so many of my listeners. I know it speaks to me that we can somehow maybe be afraid to approach Christ in, you know, Christ in the person of the priest to confess these sins that if he already knows, but we can be, because of shame or fear or confusion or doubt or whatever the emotion might be, we avoid it. And yet there's so much release there, right? Yes. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, I, I was so blessed with that, that confession and, and what he said to me, when I, when I confessed this enormous thing that I've been dragging around with me for so many years. And he was so wise and um, so soft-spoken and just kind of teased a few things out and kind of realized what, what had gone on. And then he said, as I say in the book, he just said, now I want you to put this out of your mind forever. Oh. And that's, it was so mm. powerful. Oh. It was just so powerful. It was absolute release. Yes. And, and we- just the most precious thing. Oh the my most goodness. precious thing. Yeah, it was it was absolutely amazing. And I thought to myself, as I walked out, I thought, wow, because my uncle had described to me the church, because he's not religious, had said, oh, he said, don't throw yourself against the barbed wire of the church. Mm. And and that day I thought to myself, wow, you know, the church is just so forgiving and so loving and so mm. maternal. Mm. And I think, I think that is actually a particular point where I had to just stop and just cry because it just spoke to my heart because we get, we get these, you know, cognitive distortions, if you will, in our brain, um, uh, that there's this one sin that I could mm. just never tell, but you finally get the courage to go and speak it. And as you mentioned, it was very difficult for you and you confessed it in small phrases, but that the way that you were received in mercy and the way that you were absolved and then that priest, because we want to revisit these things. We have trouble forgiving ourselves, right? And we want to revisit. And he was so in tune with the Holy Spirit to say to you, I want you to put this out of your mind forever. Yeah. Because God did, right? Yeah, yeah, no, a very, very great blessing, absolutely. Yeah, wow. he, was, he was tremendous. Oh. And it's important, I think, to remember with confession that even if the priest doesn't say something <laughs> so yeah. wonderful, yes, <laughs> we always have to remember that the very action of going into that confession and saying that is we're having an encounter with God, a very special absolutely. encounter with God. And Absol- the very action of being there in the absolution is, is a tremendous grace. Absolutely. Uh, he, the Lord is not limited by our human weakness or our, our, you know, what we say or what we do not say or what the priest says or what he does not say. That's you know, right. It, yeah, that's it, important, isn't it? It's important because you can get to a bit like, oh, you know, and oh dear, did I say that bit or did I not put that quite right? Yes, we can <laughs> get really scrupulous about this and keep ourselves enslaved. And the Lord does not, he has forgiven us and we must move forward and put it out of yeah. our minds just like that yeah. very wise and, and humble and holy priest shared with you. Well, I, I also saw that that um, that you chose Saint Mary Magdalene as your patron uh, saint, and wow, what a powerful intercessor! Yes, yeah, absolutely. I I sort of talked through a few people. I mean, it was also quick. Like I say, I was I was an atheist in the March, and I was received into the church in the December. So it was so quick that I remember going 
you're sitting with Christina and talking about, oh, well, what about Edith Stein? You know, what about Therese of Lisieux? <laughs> you know, yeah. These are people I was just getting to know. And I thought, I don't have time to get to know somebody properly to take their name. And, but I, I realized I wanted someone who, who knew our Lord and had touched our Lord. I, that was so special to me. Yes. And and that's really what what worked with me was the fact. You see, I I would have, <laughs> I feel, I pray, I would have been the same. I would have wanted to to you know, bathe his feet. I would have got, I would have gone to his body. I would have wanted yes. to take care of him and to hold him, and and that was really why. Yes. He's another nurse. There's the nurse. Exactly. I was, you took the words right from me. That's the nurse. And we, yeah. it's the touching, the visceral touching, the, the suffering with, but also the physical, the flesh, you know, we're yeah. body, soul composites. And you, I think, feel that as deeply. We share that, you know, yeah. that we want to touch as well. And Mary Magdalene, you, you spoke it so beautifully, wrote it so beautifully in the book. You said, I chose Mary Magdalene because her love for Christ was so achingly evident from scripture and i wanted the name of someone who had touched him in his earthly life i wanted to bathe his sore feet dry them with my hair wait under the cross and go to clean his poor dead body wow i mean that is just so oh so achingly beautiful oh my goodness she really she's been so important for me you know really important even with the writing of this book she's she's really been there Yes. And, and of course, you, you write so much about Our Lady. And, you know, there's a paradox there where it, it seems like for a very long time, she was a present to you, but maybe hidden. But, but yet there was a resistance to her and to your image of her because of your feminist views, what you had been taught, your atheism. And it seemed to be some, she seemed to be somewhat of a stumbling block for you, maybe, you know, perhaps related to what you had been taught and maybe misunderstanding her role, you know? Yeah, I mean, she she always fascinated me and I I couldn't understand her. And the the story of the Annunciation and everything that happened, I could never understand it. And I wanted to cast the light of of, um, rationalism upon that. Yes. And so I even wrote, I wrote poems about the Annunciation, which, which are really horribly blasphemous. I mean, mm. they were kind of nice poems, but they, they tried to look at the Annunciation in a very real way, like she, you know, she had an affair with somebody or whatever. Um, and, and of course, the image of her as being very silent and um, with her eyes downcast or her eyes looking up to heaven, I just found her to be very, very submissive. But the interesting thing was that through all those years in my 20s, when I was a nurse and, and later on, uh, when I was living the, you know, just the very decadent single lifestyle in London, I always had a picture of her on my wall. And I would collect pictures of her from all over the world. And it was a kind of a joke among my family and friends that if they went somewhere, they, they would send a picture of Our Lady home to me so that I could collect these pictures. I would have, you know, Guadalupe and Fatima and Lourdes. And I didn't know why. Yeah. And my mom was always saying, I, you know, I don't understand why, why are you so interested in Mary? Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, I think it's because I'm interested in the art, because I, I really like the Renaissance pictures. But I realize now that she was just always at my side. Yes, she was just calling to you, protecting you, gently, gently guiding you. It's so, so beautiful. And and just as, as your understanding of Mary grew, you know, she really seemed to impact your understanding of your own femininity, you know, your motherhood, your, your role as a wife, and even your work. Yes, everything, everything. I mean, she's so important to me as a mother, because whenever I'm in a pickle as a mother, which is often, often, you know, you always 
look to Our Lady and she's she's been there and she's done that magnified a million times. And especially as I write in the book, you know, I, I, I live in I live near Rome, so I live in a, in a different country. And, you know, I'm an outsider and I'm used to being an outsider. And when that's difficult, I always think about her experience and about the fact that she was always different and our Lord was always different. You know, none of that can have been easy. The childhood of Christ can, cannot have been easy. Mm. Oh, no, I don't think anything about her Her whole life was easy. I mean, yeah. su- and she's such a role model for us in every every way, every yeah. way. And, you know, I, just from a practical standpoint, when I think I'm having a bad day, do you know, I think about Our Lady and I go, you know what, if she could do that, then I can do this. Yeah. I and mean, it's huge. It's the strength that, that really gets me, the strength and her courage, which you know is from this incredible trust to come back to trust again. She, you know, she was, had to, she was focused on God and never took her eyes from God. And therefore she could just walk each step as it came. Wow, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, um, I I read in preparation for our time together today, there's a number of interviews that people can go. I'll put a few links in the show notes um, for this particular episode. But one of them was so intriguing to me where you refer to the mass as the perfect poem. And I would love to hear you speak more about that as a poet, you know, and the mass. How did you explain that to us? Could you? Well, it's like it's coming back really to what I said about art and religion being similar and about attempting the communion with God. And when we take the church and we take the mass within the church, I just realized how it's also balanced and beautiful in the sense that there's a symmetry to it. And it's almost like it explains the whole of our existence. Yes. (laughs) And it's also how, as Benedict said, it's about how time intersects with eternity. So these are all things that, as a poet, you're struggling for. You're looking for a particular truth in a particular moment that intersects with eternity to cast a light that gives meaning onto everything. Wow. So it's the most accomplished poem that we have. Wow. And, and I think I, I tend to bring that up, too, because in, you know, coming from a secular culture, people will always say, oh, you know, when are they going to get women priests? Right. And to me, as a poet, I say, well, as a poet, I can see very, very easily that women priests would not fit into the poem. Because when you have a poem you're dealing with very, very deep symbols and metaphors. And when you're dealing with the poetry of the church and the mass, those metaphors aren't empty. They're real. They're right. rooted truer than truth. Absolutely. So you can't kind of tweak things around. You yeah. can't change things. They're upsetting the whole of this truth because you've only got to think back to what the priest, the male priest, is representing. He's representing Christ, and God sent his son to us. He didn't send his daughter, and he That's didn't right. send a hermaphrodite. He sent his son Right. So whether people have a problem with that or not, you know, he he sent his beloved son. So what I'm trying to say is everything within the Mass is like a poem and that everything has a very specific role to play and a very specific meaning, and it all ties in. Well, you know, if he had wanted women priests, there's another um, thought on this, that would he not have ordained Our Lady? Do you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, she has a different role to play, and we as the feminine have a different role to play, a complementary role, a we very, do, a very important and, role. And, and would he not have made Mary Magdalene in one of his 12? Yes. I mean, Mary Magdalene, he taught her. He spent a lot of time with her. He broke lots and lots of the rules of the time. He wasn't worried about breaking rules. Right. So people can't say it's of the time, you know. That's right. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think if that makes sense, as a poet, I see the church and the mass within the church is just, 
it's created by God in a very specific way to give meaning and beauty, and it's something you can't mess around with, because when you have a perfect poem, you can't change things around. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, speaking about writing and poetry, um, my writing is a bit, (laughs) I'm very drawn to more the academic type of writing, but I have my heart, you know, I'm a musician and and I have this, this draw to beauty and I would love to have the gift that you, that you have. And I'm intrigued. I'm sure some of my listeners too, I know they are writers and I'm intrigued just to hear a little bit more about your writing process, maybe how you made that transition to realize you are a poet and not necessarily, you know, a traditionally traditionally rolled psychiatric nurse. That was a big, somewhat of a big leap. And then maybe some wisdom for inspiring writers? Well, um, I wrote from very early on. So even when I was a nurse, I was writing poetry. And I, I always saw writing poetry as a way of, of trying to give meaning to things. So it was something that was always in me. And I think maybe after what happened with my nursing in London and I then kind of broke away to do an MA, I realized that I, I just, I was really, I was called to write. Although at yes. that point, of course, I wasn't religious. So I, I didn't realize it was God calling me to write. So I think the first thing, you know, if you're a writer, you know it because you realize you can't live without it. You know, it really is a kind of a vocation. Yes, very and, much. And I think that since I've become Catholic, I, I realize that, this is a gift from God, and I, I without, without meaning to sound grandiose, okay, because we all have our gifts in different areas, and we just have to use the best, the, our gifts the best way we can. And, and I realized that I wanted to write for the glory of God. And mm-hmm. so, my, so now my, my prayer life is very, is very in, intermixed with my writing. And whereas I used to sweat and worry and become consumed with jealousy about various things. <laughs> I don't do any of that anymore. Yes. <laughs> now I just pray, and I find that God helps me. And if God wants me to write something, then I write it. Yes. <laughs> if oh. He then I don't. It's become so much more simple and freeing. <laughs> very free, I would imagine. Yeah. Yes. Mm, yeah. Very, very beautiful. Free because I'm not trying to prove anything anymore. You know, if God wants me to write something, it'll come and it'll be right. And if He doesn't, then it won't come. <laughs> That's right. And it's just that in itself, that holy indifference is so yeah. free, very, very yeah. free. Well, it has been a true delight and such a pleasure to have you with me today, Sally. Oh, I want thank you. Yes, I want to encourage all of my readers to get a copy of Night's Bright Darkness by Sally Reed. Where can we obtain a copy of this and your other works and maybe connect with you? Well, uh, the, the book can be bought from um, Ignatius.com, because it's published by Ignatius Press, or from Amazon, or from uh, good Catholic bookstores, uh, yes. or ordered from any bookstore, I guess. And um, if you wanted to check out my, my religious poetry, I, I'm a poet in residence at the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs, and the website is www.asketarian.com. So that's A-S-K-E-T-E-R-I-O-N asketarian.com and I always have some poems up there at the at the at the website great well Sally thank you so much again for joining us all the way from the UK such a such a delight and a pleasure God bless you as you continue forth in sharing those gifts and talents for the glory of the Lord God bless you thank you God bless you and until we are together again my dear listeners Pax Christi y'all I'll see you next time here on the Faith and Good Council show bye bye now